you, Sarah. Well, welcome to Midtown. If you haven't met, my name is Cassie. My husband and I have the privilege of leading uh, this community together alongside a wonderful team of incredible leaders. Um, but we're so glad to have you here. A uh, little side note, if you are newer to our community, you've been coming for several weeks or maybe a month or two and you don't see your name back there at the Christmas card table, I don't want to leave you out. So you better pester one of us, uh, probably Susan. She's going to be back there. Make sure that we get your name added to the table if it's not there. Because uh, we want everybody to have a little bit of Christmas joy today, yeah? Uh, Alex and I got lots of Christmas joy this weekend. Uh, anybody ever been to St. Charles, Missouri? Anybody ever been to St. Charles? Oh, yeah. For those of you that have, you're like, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. It's basically like a Hallmark movie in real life. Um, it's this old, old town. It's probably one of the, I think it's one of the oldest towns in the United States. It sits along uh, the Missouri River or the Mississippi River? I don't know. One of the rivers, okay? It sits along one of the rivers. What? It is Missouri? Okay, good. Brad knows. Brad's our uh, expert on all things St. Louis. So um, it sits along the Missouri River, and it's, just, it's got cobblestone streets. And the whole entire like streets, like several, several blocks, just filled with stores, all decorated for Christmas. And at night, all these different people emerge as different characters from the Chris different Christmas stories. You've got like Ebenezer Scrooge, you've got like this snowflake girl, who I don't even know what that represents, but whatever. Uh, there's lots of different characters that come out, and then these carolers, and they come and sing to you. And it's like legitimately the most amazing thing ever. Uh, I have no point in telling that story other than it was really fun. Uh, so, go. Uh, but really enjoy just some time away getting to enjoy Christmas. Uh, and in addition to getting to go to St. Charles and enjoy some Christmas, Alex and I, after church last Sunday, went home uh, after eating some really good Thai food with the Weavers. Uh, what is it called? Pho Tower? Is that what it's called? Pho Tower? I don't know. Ooh, strange pronunciation. Go! It's in Westport. It's very good. Uh, we went there and had some really good Thai food. And then Alex and I went home and we watched the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Who's seen it? Yeah? Okay. Any Guardians of the Galaxy? Okay. Well, I promise I'm not going to spoil it too much. So I am going to briefly kind of recap this plot. Because there's a very important scene that I want to bring attention to today. So if you don't know anything about the Guardians of the Galaxy, there are these incredible guardians of the galaxy in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's quite the hodgepodge of characters. And you know, I didn't realize how strange these movies were until I tried to summarize like the people that compose the Guardians of the Galaxy, but here we go. So there's a raccoon, a talking raccoon named Rocket, and if he heard me call him a talking raccoon, he'd be like, I would be dead. Uh, a blue bionic woman named Nebula, a freakishly strong tattooed man named Drax, a human tree named Groot, a human praying mantis hybrid named Mantis, real creative there. And finally, their leader, who looks like an average white dude, uh, who's part American and part galactic god. Surprise, surprise. And his name is Peter Quill. And, you know, Peter Quill, he's still a little down in life because his mom's dead. She died of cancer. His dad is dead. He kind of had to kill him. It's a long story. His girlfriend is maybe dead. Jury's out on that. Uh, and, you know, he's just stuck in the rut of having to run the galaxy, having to guard the galaxy. And his fellow guardians look at him and they say, you know, you need a little cheer. And they hear of this Earth holiday called Christmas. 
And so Mantis and Drax decide to go to Earth to discover what this Christmas really is, to bring back some Christmas cheer to Peter, and to find him the perfect gift. And as they're wandering the streets of LA, those that have seen this know where I'm going with this, as they're wandering the streets of LA, Drax and Mantis, these two aliens from outer space, come across a nativity scene. A barn, a manger, filled with Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, the wise men, the shepherds, and they both look at each other and they're like, what is this? And it's a pretty funny scene when you think about it, right? Because the two aliens to outer space, why in the world would we have really old-looking people sitting little figurines in a manger scene at Christmas time? And although for many of us who maybe grew up in faith traditions, or for those of us that obviously grew up here in the United States, uh, this is not necessarily a weird thing, but it is a huh. For many of us who are familiar with the major or the nativity, we can know the components, we can hear the story, but we may not actually know what the message of it is. In fact, I would say that a lot of people, probably outside of this room, that did not grow up in a Christian family hear of this bizarre story and are like, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? There's a lot of misunderstandings around the nativity, just to name a few. No, Jesus was not born in an elaborate crib, crib carved by his father. That did not happen. No, Jesus was not born in a barn. Uh, the shepherds probably didn't bring their hundreds of thousands of sheep with them to go visit Jesus in the manger. They probably left them behind. And the wise men probably showed up when Jesus was a toddler. But I'm not just talking about these simple misunderstandings and confusions that surround the nativity story. What I really want to focus on today is the confusion regarding the message of the nativity story. If all we know about the Christmas story or the Christmas message can be summed up in the form of a nativity, then we've kind of missed the whole point. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, if you try to point out something to a dog, the dog will often look at the pointing finger instead of the object you are pointing to. Yeah, pet lovers out there, you know this to be the case, right? The dog looks at your pointing finger instead of the thing you are pointing to. Similarly, we do this with the Christmas story. This is frustrating. But it illustrates a natural mistake that many of us make when we read this story. In focusing on this major scene, on this nativity scene that we sing about, that we see during the holiday, we completely forget the purpose, the point, the message of Christmas. And that's what we're going to focus on today. You know, according to Luke's gospel, the Christmas message given by the angels to the shepherds is a message of peace, brought by the embodiment of peace itself, a Messiah named Jesus. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, Don't be afraid, the angels said to the shepherds. Look, I've got good news for you. 
news which will make everybody very happy. Today, a Savior has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord in David's town. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly, with the angel, there was a crowd of heavenly armies. They were praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and peace upon earth among those in his favor. If you grew up in a Christian household or around cultural Christianity, you've probably heard these verses before, whether that's in the telling of the Christmas story or even popular songs, right, that we listen to on the radio. Um, but with this familiarity, we have oftentimes lost the real true meaning of this message. And in order to break through that familiarity, we've got to examine a few key words. The first words that we're going to examine in this message are Savior, Messiah, or Lord. The Israelite people themselves were not a free people. So as they exist in this story, the Israelite people are not free. Rather, they are a people being held captive by Rome. And although this captivity was relatively peaceable, it was the latest in a very long history of oppression. The prophets in the Old Testament had long foretold of one who would become a savior for these Israelite people. This Messiah would liberate them from captivity once and for all. No more captors. The shepherds and all of the Israelite people would have grown up reading these prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, just to name a few. And they would have grown up holding out hope for this militaristic savior who would one day conquer the Roman government. And then, as Pastor Amanda outlined last week, they get that Messiah, but he's in the form of a baby boy. Born to a woman who was not wed, in a area that was probably housed animals and set in a feeding trough. Not only was the Savior born in the form of a baby, but they then had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait until this baby would one day, hopefully, grow up into a warrior that would save them. But instead of a savior growing up to be this militaristic warrior that saves them from the Roman Empire, they get a non-violent teacher and a healer who dies on a cross without a fight. And at this point in the story, the reader should begin wondering, huh, maybe the person that I thought this Messiah, this Savior, this Lord was supposed to be is not actually who he is. Maybe God's true design for this Savior, this leader, is very different than what I imagined. Maybe God's understanding of power, might, and victory is not really anything close to our understanding of those terms. So yet again, if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the uh, Israel, like the Jewish readers of the story, we're beginning to see God's kingdom flipped upside down. A backwards kingdom, as we frequently refer to it here 
at Midtown, right? One that flips the powers and the principalities of this world on its head and defies all of the expectations that we had. This leads us to our next set of keywords that works to define this backward kingdom for us a little bit better. And that is peace on earth. If the Messiah is much different than the Messiah we expected, could it be that peace is much different than our expectation of peace? The word used here in Luke chapter 2 for peace is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is a word that's used over and over and over again in the Old Testament over 250 times. And it's one that frequently you've probably heard uh, just within the context of our culture and life, right? Shalom. Peace. But shalom, as described by the scripture, is more than just what we think of peace. In fact, it is the ideal. It's the return to God's original creation before we, humanity, corrupted it in Genesis. Shalom is like the wholeness, the well-being that we all desire to achieve in life. And God's plan unfolded throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is to reestablish his shalom here on earth. We see this in the story of Abraham, right? God tells his people that he's going to bless all of humanity. He's going to bring his shalom on earth through the people, the Israelites that come from Abraham's line, his descendants. He makes a covenant of peace or shalom with these Israelite people in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 24 through 25. He then promises to send a savior who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And this depiction of peace, this beautiful, wonderful transformation of living, as amazing as it is, it pales in comparison to our understanding of what peace is, right? Our understanding of peace is nowhere close to that grand design, that grand image. Peace in our culture has been a fun slogan on a protest sign or a thing that's commonly used in TV shows or that Christmas song, Peace on Earth, right? Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And although this peace is a good thing, it scratches the surface of God's shalom. God's peace, his shalom, in our current cultural context has been reduced down to a lack of war or conflict. A good, potentially marijuana-induced vibe, right? Self-care, counseling, massages, yoga, exercise, or the calm act. And although these things are all, well, not all, most of these things are good things, right? Most of these things are good things, especially in moderation. Uh, they merely scratch the surface of what God's shalom looks like, of what he promised his Israelite people and is promising us today. And so what's the big idea? Our familiarity with the word peace or the idea of peace on earth has kept us from understanding the real message of Advent. 
The thing that Jesus came on this earth to do. So, what does the Christmas message or peace really mean? Through examining Jesus' birth story, we actually learn that God's peace, his shalom, his pursuit of wholeness and well-being is four things. One, it comes from costly obedience. Two, it's disruptive. Three, it's anti-fragile. And four, it's miraculously ordinary. We're going to spend the rest of our time breaking those four things down. So first, real peace or shalom comes from costly obedience. You know, we tend to sanitize the Christmas story. But Christmas is just as messy as life is. In this story, we find an engaged teenage girl who gets pregnant. A fiancé who has to unjustly take on the suspicion of his family and community that he knocked up, said fiancé. An ill-timed census that requires a very pregnant woman to travel four days from Nazareth to Bethlehem. A birth that does not take place in their home, but in the ground floor of a stranger's house, which likely contained animals. And then because the threat of King Herod posed such a great threat on Jesus' life, they could not return home. Instead, they have to live for three years in a foreign uh, land as first-time parents without their family and without their friends. Jesus, the ultimate bringer of shalom on earth, of peace on earth, comes at a really high cost. Financially, emotionally, relationally, and communally to Mary and Joseph. And although Jesus becomes an incredible blessing to Joseph and Mary, not just as parents, but as people in need of a Savior, it does not start that. Oftentimes, I think we want peace to come from a stable job, a spa day, exercise, losing that weight, the perfect family, even church participation. You fill in the blank. But in God's upside-down kingdom, oftentimes true, long-lasting peace, the thing our soul really desires, comes from Painful generosity, extreme sacrifice, relational disruption, inconvenience, and discomfort. Real peace, shalom, oftentimes, as taught by the Christmas story, comes from very costly obedience. So one, real peace comes from costly obedience. Two, real peace or shalom is disruptive. Pastor John Tyson at Church of the City in New York says this. When we feel peace in this world, it's probably because we're drifting with the cultural moment. How? <laughs> you know, we're brought up to believe that the goal of life is to be secure and successful. Right? That is the summation of the American dream. The American life, the thing that we are taught. The gold standard of living. 
But Jesus' gold standing of living is very different as depicted by the Gospels. Jesus says the gold standard of living is this. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Screwtape Letters. The safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. An easy life in this world. The enemy would want nothing more than to lull you into a sleep that's easy, that's painless, that's the world's definition of the good life. But what we learn through Christmas stories that oftentimes the thing that we think we need to achieve wholeness, to achieve well-being, is not the thing we need at all. Similar to many of us sitting in this room today, Joseph and Mary were likely looking forward to a really stable life. A wedding. A beautiful home. Several children. A stable career as a carpenter. Visiting neighbors. Becoming grandparents. And instead, this entire peaceful, wholeness, well-being plan is interrupted when Mary misses not one, but two periods. When she's told by an angel that she's going to have a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. When Joseph is asked by an angel to marry her anyway, and father a child that is not his own, and live in a foreign land for three years to protect him. From the onset, Joseph and Mary do not seem to be settling into the good life. They don't seem to be settling into the success and the security that they, we all desire. But the true beauty of the story comes when indeed they do achieve those things in the birth of Jesus Christ. Where they are fully and completely resurrected in life within him. And look forward to a day where all of those things are fully possible. See, culture teaches us that peace is achieved through security and successfulness. But the Christmas story shows us that real peace usually starts disruptive. doesn't always feel the way that we want it to. Which leads us into our next point. Real peace or shalom is anti-fragile. Author Nassim Nicholas Taleb, I hope I didn't butcher that, I'm sorry if I did, he coined a term which is uh, anti-fragile, what I just referenced. And it refers to things that actually get better and thrive as a result of stressors, shocks, volatility, noise, mistakes, faults, attacks, or failures. In his book, he writes, anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. But the anti-fragile actually gets better 
because of shock. See, the Christmas story is quite literally one of anti-fragility. At every stop, Jesus faces opposition, pre-birth, post-birth, and through his childhood years. And yet it does not weaken him. This origin story does not define him. This story only makes him stronger. In fact, throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptural narrative, we see underdog after underdog. Stories of people who experience extreme conflict and as a result have stronger peace, shalom, wellness, whole being than they ever have before. Abraham, great example. Jacob, persecuted as a teenager, becomes the ruler of all land after going to prison. Joseph, right? Or that was Joseph, sorry, I'm getting my people mixed up. That was Joseph. Joseph, right? Jacob, though, right? He's the youngest born. He does a really stupid thing when he grows up, right? And yet, through it, he becomes the person that Jesus descends from. Moses, right? He starts out as an orphan. He has to flee for threat of being murdered, and then he ends up leading the Israelite people, having greater access to God than anyone before him. Rahab, a woman who's a prostitute, who opens herself up to God and says, I will help his people. David, right, a very unlikely guy, Underdog of underdog, youngest in his family, runt of the pack, ends up leading the greatest time in Israel's history. Learns to love Jesus in a more intimate way than any of the scriptural writings that we read. Ruth, this is an incredible one. Someone whose husband passes, who's left to take care of her mother-in-law, who has to go and work to just eat meager food as she's starving, and ends up meeting an incredible man who loves her, who takes care of her, shows her what it's like to experience the love of God. She ends up being one of the people that Jesus descended from. The scriptures are full of these underdog characters. Those that you would think have no chance of succeeding based on their circumstances and end up doing incredible things for God. Theologian Thomas Merton puts it this way, sooner or later, if we follow Christ, we have to risk everything in order to gain everything. We have to gamble on the invisible and risk all that we see and taste and feel, but we know the risk is worth it because there's nothing more insecure than this transient world. If the last three years have taught us anything, it's that the things that we thought were so strong were actually really weak. And the things that we thought were weak turned out to be incredibly strong. Real peace, real shalom, becomes stronger in the face of conflict. It's anti-fragile. This leads us to our next point, point number four. Real peace, shalom, is miraculously ordinary. 
You know, Jesus' birth story, the Christmas story, is this messy amalgamation of the miraculous and the ordinary put together in one. Miraculous, a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oh my, right? The ordinary, the nausea, the achiness, the pain that comes from pregnancy. The miraculous, Jesus is born in Bethlehem as it was prophesied hundreds of years ago. The ordinary, the grueling, annoying four-day trek that they have to take because the government decided to have a census. The miraculous, the birth of Jesus, God in the form of humanity. Ordinary, the pushing, the blood, the sweat, the natural birth, no doctor, no epidural. We see the miraculous and the ordinary collide in the Christmas story. And similarly, real peace, real shalom, real wholeness, real well-being is filled with both supernatural encounters and revelations of God and the boring, ordinary work of everyday life. And I think oftentimes we find ourselves in that grind, in that work, and we think, oh, God, where are you? Show up. And the reality exists that we will have those miraculous moments. Like the supernatural will happen, but a lot of life is sitting in that miraculously ordinary. That ordinary time where we know that the supernatural can exist, but we just have to do what's in front of us right now. And the beauty of the Christmas story is that God shows up even in the ordinary. So the experience of both God's supernatural power and our ordinariness, that God forms us, that he shapes us in his peace, he shapes us into a life full of shalom. Real peace is miraculously ordinary. Comes with times of supernatural power, but often feels mundane. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. The peace on earth that we hear about in this Christmas story, and that we sing about in songs, is not simply the absence of conflict or pain. It's not cozy, hot chocolate, hallmark moments. It's not the comfort of financial success and security in this world. It's not the relief of getting all of our Christmas shopping, holiday parties, <coughs> plans out of the way. But rather, real peace on the earth is the coming of Jesus to earth. And when we accept this real peace, this wholeness, this well-being, we find that our obedience is costly. We experience disruption. We learn anti-fragility. The notion that the conflict that I experience is not necessarily a bad thing, but a thing designed to make me stronger. And we exist in both the miraculous moments and often the ones that are just oh so very ordinary. 
This peace is not necessarily easy. I wish it was. But it is a peace that leads to true fulfillment. The restoration of God's creation. The slow formation of our own heart. And the transformation of the world around us. Maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The question remains, do we want this real peace? And if so, are we willing to open ourselves to it? Are we willing to open ourselves up to Jesus? Knowing full well that it might be costly. That there may be disruptions. That we may find us on the, ourselves on the annoying side of anti-fragility. That we may get a little bored with the mundane aspects of life. But the end, you know, the wholeness, the well-being achieved at the end of the road in Jesus. So very. You know, the worst thing that we could do in this season is to be distracted by cheap peace instead of getting closer to the peace bringer, Jesus. And so my task to you today is this. Every time you come across a nativity scene this Christmas, I want you to be reminded not to focus on the pointing finger, but on the thing it's pointing to. The real message of Christmas, Jesus ushering a whole new way of living, well-being, wholeness that may look entirely different than we thought it would, but is exactly what we need. My prayer today is this, is that we would be open to God's shalom, his peace, ushered to this earth by Jesus this season. Let's pray together. Lord, I imagine many of us came into this place today just wanting a little relief. A pause from the difficulties in life. Slowing down from the distractions. the removal of conflict, of pain in our life. And although all of those things are so honorable and worth asking you, we also recognize through this Christmas story that sometimes the formation of our heart Our ability to love people around us. The restoration of your kingdom on earth sometimes first comes with costly obedience. First comes with a little bit of disruption. First comes with a little bit of conflict. Maybe just the annoyingness of ordinary day. today we ask that you would help us to find you 
to find you in the difficulty, to find you in the disruption and the annoyance, to find you in the ordinary. Lord, the story teaches us that bringing your shalom here on earth can be difficult, but it also teaches us that you're intimately aware and you're intimately familiar with that difficulty. You are familiar with what this peace feels like. Familiar with its cost. You're familiar with its disruption. You're familiar with its pain. You're familiar with its boredom. So Jesus, we ask that we be able to recognize you today in our moments leading up to Christmas. And today, as we open ourselves up to you, we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.